Welcome back to a uh, hopefully special uh, pre-Thanksgiving version of Supreme Myths. I am excited today to have as my guest someone who has been on once before, but when I went to look how long ago it was, it was in August of 2020, which means this podcast has lasted at least three years. I didn't think it would last three weeks, but here we are. Mike Dorf, as all of you know who are listening to this, is the um, Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell. Uh, he's Harvard grad, both undergraduate and law school. Um, he is one, a co-author of one of the most famous con law and most used con law case books there is. He's written may, far too many essays and books to even talk about. And um, he is a good friend and my blogger-in-chief at Dorf on Law. And I want to take this moment to publicly thank Mike because, as most of you know, um, Mike and I agree on most things. But I am a little more out there when it comes to Supreme Court critique than he is. But he never lets that get in the way of my writing, which is something I've appreciated for a very long time. Mike, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And to return the favor, I just want to thank you, Eric, for your terrific contributions to Dorf on Law and for getting all of our stuff out there. Thank uh, you. So it's been thank very, you. very uh, satisfactory uh, arrangement for me. I will say that, when, that when, when I retire, this whole blogging teamwork thing with Neil and sometimes others, Neil Buchanan, sometimes others, is one of the favorite things I've done in my career, honestly, because Mike always makes my pieces a little better, and it's just, it's all good. All right. So, a couple of days ago, I'm sitting there minding my own business, um, preparing to go to New York to discuss guns, and then all of a um, DC, excuse me, and then all of a sudden, the Supreme Court issues its long-awaited um, ethical code, code of ethics. And um, most of us were chagrined to see that there's no enforcement mechanism in there. But I think you have other more complicated views about it. So why don't you tell us what you thought when you first saw it? What do you think of them substantively? And do you think this is anything at all, or is it just a joke? Uh, I think it's not nothing, but it's not a whole lot more than nothing. Uh, so the first thing to note, right, is that uh, there's this introductory statement issued by the court, uh, and then there's the code uh, signed by the nine justices. So in the introductory statement, one of the things they say, and it sounds like Chief Justice Roberts speaking, but who knows? Uh, it sounds, you know, people have said, hey, you guys don't seem to have any ethics. What's going on? And they're, well, that's a misconception. We have long adhered to a kind of common law uh, of legal ethics or judicial ethics. And, but, you know, to allay people's concern, we are hereby codifying that in, in this code. Um, and then you read the code, and it's pretty short. Uh, it, for the most part, is similar to the rules that apply to lower court judges. Uh, wherever it's a little different, though, it tends to be more permissive in terms of what the justices can do. Uh, some of that, I think, is justified by the uh, fact that when the lower court judge has a conflict of interest or has some other reason why they can't participate in the case, you can just substitute for that lower court judge, right? Uh, if it's a federal appeals court, you make up a different judge for the third judge on the panel. If it's a federal district judge, you assign it to somebody else. And this uh, code says, well, we can't do that. And so we have the rule of necessity, whereby even somebody who has a conflict might participate in the case. And so that's a problem. It's a problem I want to talk about a little later. Um, but it's, it's not just a problem for whether you recuse. It's also a problem for the lack of any enforcement mechanism. So if you look at the, the rules that govern 
lower court judges. If a lower court judge is found to be in sort of violation of some rule, uh, there are a number of different sanctions. They include from the least, which is sort of private reprimand. I guess the chief judge takes it into their chambers and, you know, wraps you on the knuckles or something. <laughs> um, to uh, uh, public reprimand, which is, you know, more embarrassing. It's a kind of shaming rest, uh, remedy. And then there's even that they can temporarily suspend you from your uh, from hearing cases. Uh, public reprimand could lead to impeachment. Wait, 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 uh, Mike, can we stop there for a second? Temporarily suspend. Really, they can do that on their own without. I mean, that, that that's that's with so life tenure. That seems a little odd. Well, that's why it has to be temporary. Yeah. Uh, and there are, you know, so there's some guidance about that. Uh, it, it almost never happened. Yeah. Uh, and you know, even the any remedy at all is quite uncommon. Right? They just be reluctant to find even a violation, much less than provide a remedy. So you don't very often see this used, but it's at least there uh, in the background. Uh, you couldn't have the temporary suspension as a penalty in the Supreme Court for the same reason that you don't get these recusals. And so you're not going to get that kind of mechanism. But it, I guess I was a little surprised that they did come up with even a kind of fig leaf of an enforcement mechanism, you right. know, like you can file a complaint with the chief justice yes. in the same way that you can file complaints with the chief judge of a federal appeals court or a federal district court. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, um, yeah. You, you said, I wanted to ask you about how you started. You said codified. I don't know what that means in this context. Is this like, what is the status of this four or five page document? Is it in any sense legally binding on the justices? Yeah, so that that relates to another issue I was just about to talk about, Sorry. right? Which is, I uh, I put this on the blog uh, uh, earlier in the week, in that the statement, which is a page, comes from the court, but then the code is signed by the nine justices, which suggests to me that they're sort of voluntarily agreeing to this, and therefore it's not legally binding, right? There's no consideration that we think of it in contract terms, right? <laughs> They're just saying, no, this is something we, it's an aspiration. Yes. Um, you know, and, and so I contrast that sort of almost paradoxically uh, with Cooper against Aaron, which is the only Supreme Court case ever signed by all nine justices. But there, the signature from all nine justices is a way of uh, emphasizing legal status. Here, it seems to me, because it's not a document of the court, in theory, you know, if you were appointed to the court tomorrow uh, and said, you know, I'm not going to sign on to this, I don't know that it has any effect on you. Right. I want to talk about recusal for a second because that's been in the news so much. And also, I just I went to a Fordham symposium a few weeks ago and we talked about you a lot at that at that symposium because I was making the argument that there are ways to accuse the Supreme Court justice that doesn't destroy the civil, entire civilization of the world. Professor Louis Ferrelli, who's a friend of mine and was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, has written a book on recusal. It's a very good book. We disagree on some of the premises. Uh, he dis, you, you wrote an article once with Lisa Tucker saying that one Supreme Court in Article 3 would allow retired justices to sit and that wouldn't stop retired justices if there was a recusal situation. But you want to go stronger than that, right? You want to go deeper than that. Go ahead. Right. So uh, in my verdict column for next week, I'm going to propose that Congress uh, could and should amend the existing federal statutes to provide for the possibility of a federal appeals court judge filling in 
or a Supreme Court justice. Now, as I, this clearly would require a statutory change, the question that has been raised is whether this would be constitutional, right? And the objection is that where the uh, Article Three says there shall be a Supreme Court and such lower federal courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and establish, that, well, the Constitution sets up the Supreme Court, to which the response, I think, is, well, kind of, right? The Constitution requires that there be a Supreme Court, doesn't specify the number of justices. You think that's a more important determination than how you fill in for the occasional vacancy. Uh, it doesn't forbid justices whose primary job is serving as a Supreme Court justice from filling in on the lower federal courts. That was the scheme for the, you know, much of the first century. Or, or even agencies. Who, the Mistretta case says they can even serve on agencies. Right. Uh, as long as they've got judicial yes. business. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, Earl Warren moonlighted as head of the Warren Commission. Robert Jackson took a temporary leave to serve as their chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. So it seems to me a, a very, you know, much less significant departure from that to say that uh, a federal appeals court judge could be selected to serve uh, in place of a, a missing justice. Now, there are political obstacles. I was going to say the bit, Michael. I, I was going to interrupt. I was going to say it at the at the conference. The biggest objection. I think I convinced them I was right, and you were right about the legal issue. But they could not figure out a way to do this in a nonpartisan way that makes sense. Right. So. Um, Here's the problem as I see it, right? You know, you could do what some states have done with respect to Senate vacancies, right? The Constitution allows the governor of a state to fill vacancies, you know, while you're waiting to have a special yeah. election. And a number of states now have these laws where you have to appoint a senator of the same party as the senator who vacated right. the seat. And it's a question as to whether that kind of a re restriction on the governor's power is itself constitutional. But let's let's assume that is. You could do something like that for the Supreme Court, right? So if, you know, if it's Sam Alito who's uh, not available, you got to pick from the, the wheel of judges who are appointed by Republican presidents. The problem with doing that, I think, is it makes explicit what all of them are always at pains <laughs> to deny, which is they are a political body, or as you would put it, my view, this is your view, right? They're not a court. Right. Uh, and I think there'd be a lot of pushback against that. But then if you just sort of at random, um, the Republicans in Congress aren't going to go for it because they see themselves as having a, you know, a six to three advantage. Why jeopardize that even for the occasional recusal? by the, you know, on the chance that you get a Biden or Obama appointee replacing a Republican. I'm frustrated. My frustration is rising because it makes me think, I think you're right, 100% right on this. But I, I go back to 2016 and Scalia dies in February and we have four conservatives and four liberals. And we even have four conservatives and four liberals where Breyer is fairly conservative on criminal law issues compared to the other three issues, uh, justices. And Kennedy is fairly liberal on gay rights and um, a couple other things. Um, and I said, this is the time to restructure the court right now because it's tied. And we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. And we don't know. It was like a Rawlsian veil of ignorance. And leaving aside my solution, I don't want to talk about that today. I just thought that was the time to do this. And you know who stopped it, Mike? Liberals. Because liberals thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. My good friend Erin is writing an article about what the new liberal court is going to do. My, frankly, my mentor, Mark Tushnet, writes an article saying 
quote, F Justice Kennedy, and we're going to turn the court into a liberal you know, bastion. And, and, and so I, I, I pled with people to think this is the moment. Didn't happen, obviously, and I'm sorry. I'm just still frustrated about that particular moment. Um, we'll get past the guidelines in a second. I've one, I think I have one more question about it. So I've been surprised by how many people have said the following. Normal court critics, not as much as me, but, you know, generally court critics and not partisan court critics. People have said, well, it proves they're listening. At least we know that they are following the media and the public enough to know that this has become a very big issue um, and something is better than nothing. I actually think, this won't surprise you, in this case, maybe something is worse than nothing. And I'm curious what you think about all that. Yeah, so I think that the critics are right that it does mean they're listening. Although I also uh, was reminded recently that uh, when Justice Kagan testified before Congress about something about four years ago, uh, she said that the court was working on an ethics yes. code. So yes. it might have been something that was in the works already. You know, I don't know why it would take them four years. Well, because well, 2012 was a big year for this. This probably, the, the year the Obamacare case, Roberts wrote a whole thing about ethics, you know, in the that's right. Ahead, so that was more than four years. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's 11 years ago yeah. already. But it might have been in the works. I do think the timing suggests that they the public pressure got to them a little bit. Uh, so that part is right. Whether it's better or worse than nothing, I think, is a different question. Uh, I think it depends on how it lands. I can't imagine that, you know, Senator Whitehouse seeing this is going to say, okay, everything's fine now. Yeah, he's not said uh, that already. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, right, whatever he was going to propose, with or without the existence of the Supreme Court's own code, was going to be dead on arrival in the Republican-controlled House. So, you know, it's going to take a moment of either unified government when the party that is in power really wants some kind of reform, which is going to have a probably some sort of partisan valence, or what you've described again, right, with some moment of great uncertainty in which uh, people are, are scared and we think that, you know, this is a, there's some common ground here. You know, one thing that is a little surprising to me, hasn't gotten more traction, uh, are the, um, the various proposals to have term limits for the justices, which, you know, are broadly popular across the ideological spectrum among academics. Um, but maybe in Congress, they're thinking of it in much more short-term political terms. Let me just say, um, Mike, because I've been talking about term limits for 30 years um, to both academics and, and especially in the last 15 years to non-academics. Um, doctors, accountants, scientists, um, most of the people who I speak to who are not lawyers who, but who are highly educated of the events I'm going to, they're all in favor of term limits. None of them understand why we don't have term limits. <laughs> I mean, they understand the Constitution prohibits it, but, but I, I meet very few politically astute lay people who say, oh, life tenure, that's a great thing. <laughs> I don't think many people right. think that. Well, and, and virtually no other country in the world does it. Right. Iceland Supreme Court might. It's a little unclear, but I don't think Iceland Supreme Court has any power. All right, let's move on. We have, more, we have, we have I think, actually much more important things to talk about. So let's talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and I, I want to start with this. So, so just breaking news yesterday, a Michigan judge said it was a non-just, at least at this point, it's a non-justiciable political question. 
Um, you and I have some slight disagreements on this, I think. I don't think they're major disagreements, and most of it is predictive disagreement. Um, but we do have some disagreements. Bef let, let's start with this, though, Mike. We have a Supreme Court that claims to be textualist. You and I know they're not, but they claim to be textualist. And they claim, and they, and they like to show off their textualism when they can. Section 3 only applies to people who hold office. So the Michigan Supreme Court dismissed it. I'm sorry, the, um, the Colorado judge, one of the other judge, Minnesota court dismissed it for lack of ripeness, but for different reasons. But to me, it doesn't say anything about running for office. It would be so easy for the justices to just say, here we are again, textualists. It says you can't hold office. It says nothing about running for office. When you win, come to us. But until you win, this case is premature. I actually don't think that's a bad constitutional argument. There's some serious policy concerns there. Do you think it's a bad constitutional argument? I do, because I think of the I think it's bad on the policy grounds, right? That is, you know, so there are circumstances in which um, you could imagine uh, somebody runs for office, gets elected, and then immediately can't serve. And if it's your time of the presidency, well, you kind of know you're taking that risk anyway. And so the vice president uh, takes over. Uh, but we know that uh, vice presidential candidates are at best have, have a, a very marginal influence, right? From what I've seen, you maybe get a little bit of a pickup in the home state of the, the vice presidential candidate, almost no other, no other impact, right? So even if you have somebody, you know, uh, even if Sarah Palin is your running mate, uh, it doesn't seem to affect anything, um, right? Somebody complete, clearly unqualified. Uh, so um, I guess I think you don't want to put people in a position of taking that risk unless you really have to. So yeah, it is possible to say eligibility criteria only kick in once somebody holds office, but I don't think it's crazy to say that if somebody is ineligible to hold office, they are therefore also ineligible to seek that office on a kind of voter protection uh, rationale that you want the voters to be uh, thinking about who whom they're actually voting for. So that, you know, there are, you know, I'll just give you this. This will seem like a little bit far-fetched, but back when uh, the Supreme Court was deciding the constitutionality of Obamacare the first time in, uh, in 2012, there was a pretty plausible argument that the court couldn't decide it because the tax anti-injunction act. <laughs> what you call per, uh, what you call plausible, I call persuasive. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, so there was yeah, so there was there was a, a right, so pretty plausible argument that the court couldn't decide it because it says if you're going to challenge a, a tax, you got to first pay the tax, then sue for a refund in the tax court. And so uh, Neil Siegel, no relation, uh, and I wrote an article in the online version of the uh, Law Journal saying, yeah, but you got to find a way around that because of how wasteful it would be to have the entire healthcare system spend billions of dollars gearing up to implement this thing, only then to be told it's unconstitutional. Decide in advance. And if there's a plausible way to get there, do that. I think this is a little bit similar on that on that issue. Going back, uh, I think you're right about this issue. Going back to that issue just for one quick second, which you and I have been, I think, kind of debating for a long time. Um, my understanding and memory of the case law up to that moment of time was the majority rule wasn't unanimous, was that 
the idea that you can't sue about a tax until you pay the tax, which, by the way, is a matter of public policy, I think makes a lot of sense, um, yeah. was subject matter jurisdiction. You and Neil had to take the position it wasn't subject matter jurisdiction, right? Because if it's subject matter jurisdiction, we're done. Well, our, our position was it did, that, it, that if you parsed it correctly, it didn't apply. Okay, okay. So I do think that was I, my best reading of the precedent and the statute is that when it applies, it's subject matter jurisdiction. That's my view on that. Yeah, that's right. And Vicki Jackson, who was appointed uh, as ba basically as an amicus to argue against the court's jurisdiction because both sides yes. wanted the court to take it. Yes. Right. You know, he did put some pretty forceful arguments. Yeah. Okay. So going back to section three, um, let's get rid of a few things. I think the argument that the president isn't an officer is one of the stupidest arguments of all time for purposes of section three. I think you agree with that, right? Uh, I think it is a textually plausible argument, but crazy. Okay, uh, yeah. in, you know, in the, in the same way that it's textually plausible to say that, you know, that paper money is unconstitutional. Right. But crazy. Right. Okay. So we agree on that. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I wasn't there, so this is triple hearsay, but I hear from various people that at the Fairless Society Convention this week or last week, whenever it was, uh, Josh Blackman, I think, stood up during an, an, an or and challenged Will Bode and Michael Paulson to a debate on this issue. Oh, I thought you could say challenged him to a duel. That would have been much that would, that would have been more fun. That's true. Josh would lose that, that debate in the first 30 seconds of that debate. But anyway, okay, so he's an officer. Let's get past that. Um, Mike, so you know my view is we should not use this. I think your view is maybe we should. Um, what is the most difficult legal issue to you, to a judge who wants to disqualify Trump? Yeah. So I think the hardest question is what it what is figuring out what counts as in having engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And that has two pieces. One is you have to say what counts as insurrection or rebellion. And the second thing is you have to say what counts as engaging in it. Um, and so, uh, you know, you could have as your threshold for insurrection or rebellion, uh, at the very least, there has to be some kind of violence, right? So firing on Fort Sumter counts yeah uh, but before that it's just talk um if that's your threshold well then in order for trump to be disqualified you have to make the further judgment that his egging on of the crowd on january 6th um and maybe and this one i think is trickier his uh non-feasance uh in the several hours while the rioters are running riot in the capitol counts as engaging uh in it. I, I think that's uh i think that is a possible argument um you know i think it's hard because you then have to say well you know there are all sorts of things that people do that are uh against the law and that are directed at the government I'm not sure you would say they're insurrection or rebellion right so you know even even very serious wrongdoing so you know did timothy mcveigh engage in insurrection or rebellion I guess I don't have a problem saying that he did. I think he right? did. He's, I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you know, of course, he's, you know, he's not going to hold office because, well, now he's dead. But he he was, you were going to, you were going to charge him with that. Um, but there might be other things um, that uh, count as lawbreaking um, and count as even lawbreaking directed against the government that fall short of insurrection or rebellion. So okay, to, so there's there's that. Wait, 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 can we yeah. pause there? Because I, que I have some questions about that. Um, so what if it turns out, and by the way, it, it looks like it may turn out this way, that Trump was not just a kind of getting legal advice bystander to the fake elector scheme, 
but was actually the prime movement of that scheme, or at least one of the prime movements of the fake elector schemes. Let's make the facts easy. Let's, this is, yeah. I, want, I want to be clear here. These are not the real facts necessarily. Hypothetical. The president sits in the United States and comes up with a pace, peaceful but fraudulent way to stay in office that is clearly illegal and clearly wrong. And when found out, might even be impeached for it, but it's all peaceful. No one gets hurt. Yeah. Is that an insurrection? So I, th I think it could be. Um, I, I think that that actually falls more to my, to my mind. That's more like rebellion. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you think of someone like we can talk about someone having a rebellious personality or I've like, been called that at times. <laughs> yes. To, to rebel against something is to sort of operate against it. And I've seen arguments that make that plausible, um, that he's attempting to, you know, rebel against the orderly system of the transfer of power, uh, that we have, uh, so, so I think that, you know, if you think that insurrection or rebellion means you could, that they're, they don't entirely overlap, I think there's a case to be made that, you know, that would count, um, in the same way, sort of that, um, you know, somebody who sort of winks and nods at violence, even if they're not directly, right, they might be, they're perfectly happy if you accomplish the illicit goal without the violence, but they're right. like, that's okay. Like, I think that would, that would count across the threshold for, for me. The main reason I ask it, and I've, I've said this at the two conferences I've been at on section three, um, in the future, I mean, cyber insurrection is likely to happen more quickly than regular insurrection. And I feel like cyber insurrection is, ins is, is insurrection. I don't, you know, if, if, they, if someone f figures out a way to, to take down all the computer systems, blackmails the country, make me prep, blah, blah, all that stuff, I, I, we, even without any violence, I think that's insurrection. I think it's clear. Yeah. So uh, let, me, let me sort of frame this a little differently for how I think about it. I think there's a tendency of lawyers uh, when trying to figure out the meaning of some unclear term to ask ourselves, well, if I, you know, if I go this far, what's going to happen in the following hypothetical ca cases? And, and often that's a good way to figure out the limits of a principle because you don't want to license some further, you know, future disaster. Uh, I think that we are right now in such a crisis that, um, that's not the best way to think about this. It, it's kind of like, you know, imagine you're the manager of a baseball team in game six of the World Series, and you're trailing three games to two, right? The, do you want to save your bullpen for game seven? Well, ideally you would, but you got to win this game now. Otherwise, there's not going to be a game seven. And I think that's sort of the moment we're in now so that I don't worry too much that the mechanism we use to prevent the return of Donald Trump to the White House could have unintended harmful consequences down the road if it succeeds. Even in the hands of Republicans? Yes. How come? I think that he is such an existential menace yeah. to constitutional democracy that it's worth um, providing some, some tools. So, for example, think about impeachment, right? Uh, you know, um, from the, the beginning of the Republic through, uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, we had one impeachment. We, we would have had a second one if Nixon hadn't resigned, yeah. but, two, but now, right, uh, following Trump, 
right? Uh, it's clear Republicans are going to try to impeach Biden. They're not going to succeed, but it sort of root, routinize it. Um, I think that was worth the risk or would have been worth the risk if we thought that it had a serious chance of his being convicted in the Senate. So um, I'll go farther than you and say that Donald Trump is an existential threat to the world, not just the United yeah, States. Yeah, I do that. And, and I have yeah. to say, Mike, um, when you were talking and this thought hadn't hit me before, but it may be we, meaning the country of the United States and the citizens, have an obligation to the world to keep this man out of power. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's a bad argument because I do think he's a threat to the world. So you and I agree that um, we are at a moment of existential crisis, that if this man becomes president again, it is very likely our country might not recover in a way, well, there'll be a country, but in a way that you and I recognize. So the only thing you and I disagree about here is whether we should do it or not. Let's leave aside the issue. I mean, I, we could debate whether the Supreme Court would ever let this happen, and I think the answer is no. But before we get there, um, so we both Certainly, you. If I said to you, he's not going to be he's not going to be disqualified, but he won't be president. You'd go a lot. You'd go away happy. And oh, sure, yeah. And if someone yeah. said to me, he's going to be disqualified, and he's not going to be president, and the country's not going to be burned, I'd be happy. He's, I mean, he's going to be disqualified, but the country's fine. I'll be. I'd be very happy. I think that this moment of crisis um, is, is is was a a bonfire that Trump threw in another ten matches because the the Trump base has been here all along. Uh, I'll never forget, a friend of mine used to write for your blog, Bill Hausdorff. He's a scientist, but he's incredibly politically astute and, and well-read. Um, and, and 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Bill would say to me, Eric, you're so naive. A third of America still wants segregation. A third of America tomorrow would go back to segregation, at least in the South, if they could. Um, and, and he was on to, the, to that problem long before I was. Um, now I think he's right. I think a third of America would be happy to go back to segregation, at least in the region of the country I live. So my fear is that um, we already know his poll numbers go up when he gets indicted, and that could be fake polls and all that, but they seem to do that. Mike, I'm really concerned his base will not take this sitting down. And it's not that I'm kowtowing to them. It's that the degree of unrest that could happen is far greater if we disqualify him than if we beat him, I think. Yeah, so let me preface what I'm about to say with the acknowledgement that neither of us really has any expertise yes. in this. Yes, <laughs> 100%. Right, okay. we're, 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 Fine. So I, and so we're, so we're not talking now as constitutional scholars. We're talking as citizens making judgments about... With one exception, uh, Mike, with one exception. And, I, I want, because, and this is important to me. And if we have time, which you may not, I, we'll get into this. Um, I'm not a political scientist or anything like that. I don't pretend to be. I think I've been right about Roe versus Wade from this from, from 1991 at least to today. I think and so. I've studied that issue. I've studied the issue. Read Weaver Siegel. Read Linda Greenhouse. Read counter narratives about about what happens when the court does something so, in my opinion, removed from the mainstream that there's backlash to it. I have studied that issue. And I think there's a serious backlash problem here. I think there was a serious backlash problem with Roe. We'll hold that. We'll hold that off. But I do. I have studied that idea when the court causes American crisis, like in 1936. That's something I have studied. So go ahead. Right. So I can't let that go. Okay. Uh, so I'll say <laughs> one thing about that, which is, um, I think there is backlash to the Supreme Court. Um, I also think certain issues mobilize people. 
right? It's clear right now people who are pro-choice are more mobilized because they perceive a greater threat from the political system. It was the opposite for the previous nearly 50 years. Um, I don't think that's a consequence of the, you know, uh, how Roe was written, whether it was right or wrong. I think that's a consequence of the divisiveness of abortion as an issue. So I'll bracket that. We'll get back to that uh, later, hopefully. Go ahead. Let's talk about yeah. um, Section three. Backlash, backlash to disqualification. So it's my view that as just, so this part, I now I am going to speak as a constitutional scholar, right? So Trump will not be disqualified from the ballot unless the Supreme Court gives the green light yes, to that. We agree. Because federal judges are going to find no standing because nobody opposing him on the ballot is going to do that. The Republicans won't do it because they're afraid of him. Uh, by the time you get to the general election, Biden's not going to do it because it's going to look weak. Um, and so it's only going to be these individual voters who don't have standing in federal court. So those cases are gone. State judges don't always have to be uh, abide by such strict standing rules. Some of them will dock it on non-justiciability, political question grounds. Um, but if Trump is going to be disqualified, it'll be by some state court. And for that to last, that's got to be affirmed by some, some state Supreme Court. At that point, the U.S. Supreme Court can hear Trump's appeal because even though the plaintiff wouldn't have had standing in federal court originally, the ruling against Trump would give standing because he's now got an injury, right? That goes up to the Supreme Court. They then decide. So I think if the U.S. Supreme Court says, right, U.S. Supreme Court with a majority of Republicans, including three of his own appointees, says he's not eligible to be on the ballot, I think it doesn't eliminate the threat of violence, but I think it tamps it down substantially. Um, and I think that's extremely unlikely to happen, that the Supreme Court is going to do that. But if it were to happen, you know, then I think uh, we're not appreciably worse off than the kind of violence we get if he just loses the election and then he says, I didn't lose the election. Right. Are you in and, and that assessment? Are you balancing? So a state Supreme Court judge disqualifies him again, highly unlikely, but it happens. State Supreme Court. It goes up to the Supreme Court. Um, at that moment in time, you know, Trump is going to pull out his entire PR somehow. And he's, he's not as good as this as he used to be. But unfortunately, he is kind of a savant when it comes to appealing to the people he wants to appeal to. And um, he will go ruthless on the Supreme Court, which I actually think makes it more likely the Supreme Court rule against him rather than for him. But he'll rally, he'll, he will absolutely fire up his base against the Supreme Court. Now, you and I will say, wait a minute, you pick three of them and the others. And then, but, what, but, but what if it's 6-3 with all three Trump judges dissenting? That's a real problem. Yeah, so for that to happen, though, that means he, he still loses Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and uh and john roberts right yeah. and though right there there's there's no way he loses if he holds on to uh gorsuch kavanaugh and barrett and so i don't so i don't think that's a realistic scenario okay okay um you said understanding issue I, I want to ask you about that and i and i should know this and i don't if if someone is running for president in uh and in georgia president of the united states and in georgia and he's 33 years old are you saying that a voter in Georgia who wants to vote for a, a Republican, let's say Trump, let's say let's say Trump, a Republican, 
um, but feels that the Republican on the ballot is ineligible, they can't bring suit. They can't bring suit in federal court and say, this person can't win. So I'm being deprived of my vote to vote for someone who can win. Um, that's a really interesting question, right? So the, right, so the question is, does a voter have standing to challenge the eligibility of someone they believe is ineligible yes. on the ground that it gives it? So in the primary, I don't see how you could possibly have said it because you can still vote for any of the other uh, other alternatives, right? It's only in the general. Where I meant the general. Problem. I meant the general. Yeah. Uh, you may have said the general. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I probably didn't. <laughs> uh, so the. Uh, uh, but I still think that the, you know, so look, you and I both have written that standing doctrine is notoriously manipulable. Yes. Um, I could see the argument being made that uh, this is not actually depriving you of anything particular to you. It's a generalized grievance or, or what have you. Now, I'm, I'm making a predictive judgment. I mean, what I said earlier in the show about how I would like the I'd like this to be justiciable because I think voters ought to be able to know means that I think maybe they ought to have standing. Right. I just don't seem likely to happen. Okay. Um, I guess one last question about Section 3, and then we will move on. And I'm really curious about this because, um, so you have a lot of expertise in things besides con law, just so people should know that. Um, and and I, I admire your ability to look at society in general and see some big pictures. Um, I want to make, I want you to make me feel better, but I have a feeling you're not going to. Um, let's assume he's not disqualified, assume it's a close election, and assume he wins. And assume that, that Democrats are relatively confident he won fair and square, as opposed to him doing something obviously cheating. And you're Joe Biden's advisor, and he's going to do whatever you say. You say, give him, give him the nuclear codes, let him come in, he won fair and square, he, has, he gets to be president of the United States. Because I think if he's president of the United States again, I think our country's over. I do. So... What do you do if you're president? If yes. You, yeah. Yeah. So you're asking me a question about role morality. Yes. Right. Um, there are. So, you know, I. I'm a follower on this score of uh, late philosopher Isaiah Berlin, um, who was a big believer in the plurality of values. So you can have conflicting obligations. It seems clear to me under these circumstances that your legal obligation yes. is to hand over the, the nuclear football. Yeah. Um, do you have a moral obligation to the contrary? And if so, does it outweigh your legal obligation? There are many circumstances in which our legal obligations can conflict with our moral obligation just for the audience mike um, for, if, we, if we found a note from trump saying when i win i'm going to nuke the world yeah. i think the moral obligation there would be clear so the, see what you're describing yes, does exist in the world go ahead go ahead correct right i mean the you know the 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 best version of this in the literature is robert covers justice accused where yeah. he talks about the role of uh judges in the antebellum period when the Fugitive Slave Act required them to do something which was clearly immoral, uh, namely to hand over people who had escaped slavery back to their enslavers. Um, and, you know, Cover concludes that, you know, the moral obligation sort of prevails. Um, 
Raul Dworkin talks about this in Law's Empire. He hypothesizes a uh, German judge who had been just a regular judge, and then the Nazis come to power. Uh, and what Dworkin says there is that he ought not to cooperate with the Nazis, but he ought to also lie about the content of the law. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you accept that, and I think in extremists, I agree with uh, both Cover and Dworkin on this, um, then so long as you're sufficiently confident about, you know, the catastrophe that Trump will be, and that doing this is actually going to have a good chance of working, then maybe you do have a moral obligation to do that. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's clearly unlawful under the existing law. My guess is they would fudge it as, but the problem is it's so hard to do this now, but they would fudge it as the election was too close to call. I mean, they, they would never, my guess is they would come out and fudge it that way and, and, and say there's too much uncertainty about who won, but I don't know. Um, it's a nightmare. I, I, have, I, I actually have very little doubt that they would in fact hand it over. I think yeah. that, I think that part of the, the valid critique of Trump is that he is, you know, is undermining democracy and especially with respect to the peace, peaceful transfer of power, if he won, you know, fair and square, you really have no choice. Okay. And, you know, catastrophic though that is. <laughs> and we agree on that. So let's move to something we don't agree on. Um, and I'm going to skip over guns because we're running out of time. Um, I really want to talk about this, Mike, but I, I need three minutes of monologue to talk about it. And then you can tell the whole world why I'm wrong. Um, so just so people remember, my, I attended women's consciousness raising meetings in 1971 at the age of 13. My mother had in her house. Um, I heard women talk about friends of friends who died from back alley abortions. I have been, it's 1971, two years before Roe. I have been pro-choice ever since I was 13. My wife was board chair of Planned Parenthood when I met her. Um, I'd like to think my pro-choice credentials are pretty good. I volunteer for Planned Parenthood all the time. And I've always thought Roe and Casey were wrong. Now, when I say wrong in that sentence, I don't mean it in the legal sense, because as you've written and I've written, um, Roe is not a, an outlier in constitutional method at all. That's a big myth that the conservatives perpetuated. Certainly in consequences, yes, but not in its legal reasoning. The Supreme Court does things like Roe all the time, and now they're doing it more often than they did before. So, But when I, when I say it was wrong, when I say I meant the, the, the backlash to it, to me, hurt every single progressive cause feminists would be in favor of. Everyone, except maybe abortion. It affected our state, local, state, and national elections. There's no question in my mind Donald Trump's not president without Roe versus Wade and Casey. We should disclose at this point, Mike, that you clerked for Justice Kennedy in the term that Casey was written, not saying your involvement in any way, but you were his clerk during the Casey term. Um, and we lose on everything else other than abortion. So then the question to me becomes, how much did we gain from Roe about abortion? And that's a complicated question. And it's one that, that Reva and Lin, Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse are the two people who have fought, who have been the, the loudest. And I respect both of them a lot. They've both been on this podcast. Um, and I respect both of them a lot. But I think they're very wrong about this. Their view was, which is, I think, your view, it would have played out in the legislatures exactly the same way. Or all, not exactly the same way, but with similar effects. That if Roe comes down and the court says, nope, no right to abortion, the fight moves to legislatures, it gets ugly, it distorts elections, all the bad things that happen would have happened in legislatures. And I'm telling you, you and Reva and Linda, you're all wrong. And the reason you're all wrong is because you're all Northeasterners. And you don't understand Alabama, Wyoming, Montana, and rural Oklahoma. Because those people, leaving aside their views on abortion, it was as much about the court 
because that's how Reagan, Mies, and the earliest Federalist Society people talked about it. They talked about it not so much in terms of the fetus, but in terms of judicial overreach. And these people really, really, really don't want to be told what to do by five lawyers, or not in Rose case seven, in Casey's case five, lawyers in Washington, D.C. So, and now, we're so far 11 for 11 in abortion on ballots, and it was my view all along that in the very long run, and I understand the horror of women who are not being able to get abortions during that long run. Believe me, I'm aware of that. But in the long run, the right to choose should come from the legislature. It should come from the people. It will not destroy our politics the way Roe did. Um, and, um, and then finally, rich women in big cities got abortions in 1970 before Roe, and they got them safely. And in fact, rich women in rural communities probably got safe abortions. It was always a class issue. And in 2023 America, poor, uh, 2022 America, excuse me, poor women in Alabama and Montana and Wyoming really couldn't get abortions. It was too hard. They had to stay overnight at hotels. It was really difficult. And, and, it, was, and it was also um, uh, traumatic for many of those women. So my view is Roe and Casey were, were just a, a terrible idea from the beginning. And, and one last thing, when I go to these kinds of issues, if I want to know how to shoot a basketball, I'll ask Steph Curry. And if I want to learn how to be a pluralistic constitutional theorist, I'll talk to you or Larry Tribe or um, the guy from Texas who's my, I'm having a senior moment on. Um, um, Steve Griffin. Yes, yeah. Um, but oh, if I want, yeah, uh, I'm not Bob Steve Griffin, um, yeah, Bob, Phil, Bob, right, right. But if I want to know about the backlash to gender issues in the Supreme Court, I'm going straight to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she more or less agrees with me on this. So when you're disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with her. Now, she didn't say we shouldn't have Roe and Casey, but she clearly said Roe was too much, too fast, and one fell swoop. And she would have done it much slower. And she lived out that. She actually, she actually practiced what she preached when Justice Kennedy wanted to overturn 41 state laws and constitutional amendments on same-sex marriage the same day that Windsor was decided and Ginsburg joined, uh, wrote a jurisdictional opinion she didn't believe in to avoid that result, wait two or three years, and then do Obergefell where the backlash would be less. She did that because of her role experience. I have no doubt about that. Okay, end of monologue. Tell, me, tell the audience why I'm wrong on everything. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, I'll start with um, a point about butterfly effects. Okay. I think neither of us has any idea how the world would have played out had Roe come out the other way. I'll just give you one example of a different case that I think has affected everything. So in Buckley against Vallejo, You're right about in which this. the Supreme Court... <laughs> Uh, strikes down um, the campaign uh, contributions, um, upholds campaign contribution limits, but not campaign spending limits. The court also uh, strikes down the so-called billionaire exception, uh, which says that uh, you can't give uh, you can't give unlimited amounts of money to your own campaign. Um, and the court says yes, you can because that's an expenditure; it's not just a contribution. That holding facilitates Ross Perot's 1992 run for the presidency. I believe that if Perot doesn't run, George H.W. Uh, Bush wins that election. We agree on that. Uh, we agree on that. Yeah. Um, if 
George H.W. Bush serves a second term. We don't have the Clinton presidency. We probably don't get George W. Bush when we get him. We probably don't get 9-11 happening, and it certainly doesn't trigger the Iraq War, uh, which is used as an, and it just, everything about the last 31 years is different, okay? Because of one butterfly effect. We just don't know how the world would have unfolded in the absence of Rowan Casey. It's quite possible some other issue, maybe a, a racial issue is used to mobilize, right? That is, people who are politically astute use whatever tools they find to hand to mobilize the public. And you can see this over the course of the last couple of generations as both Republicans and Democrats, but mostly Republicans because of the nature of their coalition, have sort of searched around for one issue after another. That's how they landed recently on opposing transgender rights, because right. they thought that would have a, have a lot of traction, even though you know it wasn't something anybody was talking about prior to that. So I don't think we know what would have happened. I don't think you know. I don't think I know. Let so me be clear. I, I, you're right. Counterfactuals I, I, are hard, and I recognize that. But... We can also talk about the way we talk about sports, which is we can still make conjectures about it that are not totally stupid. Yes, I think if the Bulls didn't draft Michael Jordan, <laughs> it's six championships. Fair, right? <laughs> uh, right. So there are right there are. Th it's yes. a great example. Michael, However, yeah. uh, all right. So a, a couple other things uh, you talked about. So one is, um, you know. Supreme Court opinions can cause backlash, but so can other things. So I think about uh, Mike Klarman's work here, uh, who's talked, a, who's written a lot about backlash, and his account is that yes, sometimes politicians use Supreme Court opinions as a means of consolidating and mobilizing backlash, but they can use other things. So, so for example, uh, if you think about same-sex marriage, the big backlash to same-sex marriage comes to Goodridge, not uh, to a Supreme Court, a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Goodridge, you'll recall, is the Massachusetts, yes. the Massachusetts yes. official court case, the first case, that was, and it does it basically relying on Lawrence against Texas. Uh, and immediately, that is the basis for various state referenda right, and people mobilized. And a lot of people thought in response to this, ah, this shows the Supreme Court is going too far, too fast, right? The, the sort of account that you've put in the in the mouth of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and well, hold, uh, hold on, I didn't put it in her mouth. She said it. Well, I, I she said that initially, but uh, the the you know when Justice Alito cites Justice Ginsburg's uh, you know Madison lecture yeah. in Dobbs, that's you know that's like um, criminal uh, malfeasance. Agreed. In that she she was a supporter yes. of Roe and Casey. She was, right. but okay. doing it very differently. Yes. Though. Doing it differently though. Once she's on the court, she's <laughs> a supporter. Of, she's she's not saying that we should overrule them and do this and do the protection laws. She she voted for the uh, the rights claimants in every abortion case that came before her um, dur during her time on the court. Okay, so but 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 putting that aside, right? So Clarman writes this book. Um, from the courtroom to the altar or something like that. It's a very good book. Okay, I can't remember the exact title. Uh, I'm in a temporary office. I don't have it on my shelf okay. right here. It's okay. Regular. He's a, by the way, for, for those listening who are not law professors, Michael Klarman, I think, is one of the most um, 
sensitive and thoughtful and 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 wonderful um, historian slash law professors we have. In fact, I asked him to be on my podcast. He's going to come on in, in about a month, so I'm excited. I'm excited. That'd be great. That'd that. be great. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so so writing before Obergefell, um, he's very concerned about backlash. Uh, then we get Obergefell, and there is backlash. But for the most part, I think it's an accurate statement to say that the Supreme Court's recognition of a constitutional right to same-sex marriage had a catalytic effect that has made people accept same-sex marriage faster than they otherwise would have. Now, that's a, that, in, that incorporates a counterfactual, um, but I believe if you look at a public opinion polling, it's almost a step function around the time that Obergefell has decided. But here's the problem, uh, Mike. Wait, hold on. But here's the problem. I think you're right about everything you just said, but here's the problem. Trump won by 75,000 votes in three states, in three swing states. And, if, and so that's, it's not exactly right, but 25,000 roughly per state. There's no doubt in my mind Trump doesn't win without Obergefell because one in five voters said, one in five voters said they voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court. Now, Roe was a big part of that, but so was Obergefell. Now, you could say to me, we'd rather have same-sex marriage legal and Trump president than same-sex marriage illegal and Trump not. I'm not going to say that. I, I am going to. I am going to contest that claim, which I've which I've seen contested by good political scientists about the the causal factors of, of you know okay. you, right. So uh, right, there are any number of things that goes that go differently. My point, right, right. Again, that's a sort of butterfly effect. But on, on the actual issue that the court decided, right, public opinion came along with the court. Yes. Right? Um, yeah. yeah. Now, that... That explains Bostock. That, by the way, explains Bostock. Who, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think... Yeah. I think So, I think you're correct in observing that, at least initially, and for a long time thereafter, public opinion did not come along with the court on abortion. However... I suspect that some of those voters in Ohio, right, who recently voted to, you know, codify abortion rights in their state constitution, had their views shaped, at least in part, by Rowan Casey. Now, that's not to say that all things considered, right, we're in a better political place than we would have been without them. I think you might be right about that, that we're, we're, we're worse, worse off than we would have been. It is to say that... Um, the effects of Supreme Court decisions on public opinion are quite complicated. And there are basically three possibilities, right? They can be catalytic, they can inspire backlash, they can have basically no effect. Um, it's very hard to know in advance which way it's going to go, right? Klarman, who I think we both agree is one of the most astute observers, historically informed, thought that the dominant effect of the court's intervention on same-sex marriage was going to be backlash. Turns out to have been more uh, catalytic. Well, so well, far, we don't know the no, ultimate but, fact. But Mike, right? hold on. But that's, just, that's, but that's um, rejecting my view that without Obergefell, Donald Trump never becomes president. I really right, believe I that. am rejecting. I, I, you know, um, so first of all, the, right, it's also true that without Anthony Weiner, Donald Trump doesn't become president <laughs> because, uh, you know, without Anthony Weiner, you don't have uh, Uma Abedin's computer having this stuff. You don't have uh, 
uh, this last minute intervention to reopen the investigation into Hillary's email. So there are any number of things you could have pointed. There's a perfect storm. Comey that, too, that right? Comey, Comey too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, right. Well, that, yeah. So um, the all right. Let me fast forward to the to the the present. Um, the popularity of abortion in these states, or even in many, not all of the red states, right? that is to say it wins on when it's on the ballot, um, might or might not be a lasting effect. And what I mean by that is, so it's now been the case, we've now had um, two uh, post-Dobbs elections in which the pro-choice side wins virtually everywhere that it's made salient. Um, I believe that will continue to happen so long as those victories are frustrated, right? So to put it differently, for years, we asked, what's the matter with Kansas, right? And what we meant in part by that was, look at how the leaders of the Republican Party exploit the rank and file. They promised them the overruling of Roe v. Wade and all this sort of these social issue red meat things. And really what they care about are tax cuts for the rich, <laughs> um, right? Yeah. So. I worry a little bit that um, liberals, Democrats, are going to end up using abortion in a similarly cynical way. That is to say, we're going to always want to keep it on the ballot uh, to mobilize people. You're talking about all these other issues, right? Um, ideally, you get the law you want, and then you fight about those other issues on their merits, right? So that, uh, you know... It looks like the Ohio legislature is going to help Democrats politically by frustrating the will of the people in ways of trying to undermine this referendum, which is only going to you know help Democrats win other elections. But it's not going to really serve the interests of democracy in the sense that you're not allowing the people who voted to have a right to abortion to actually have uh, the right to abortion. So in that sense, I think that um, I, I have a, a real worry about thinking about these these issues in terms of their sort of second and third order effects on other issues, as opposed to like just getting what you want and then moving on and arguing about the other things. Well, the, that I mean, so that's, you know, I can't argue against that. Um, I think what we're talking here is largely unknowable, counterfactual mm -hmm. and, and, and difficult. Um, but I also do want to say I have a different theory than you do about why abortion has been so politically successful in the last, you know, since Dobbs. First of all, it's not one thing. You, we, we both know it's a, it's a complicated set of factors. I mean, things, unless you have Michael Jordan on your team, most things aren't one thing. If you have Michael Jordan, it can be one thing. Um, and by the way, in about three years, if you have Anthony Edwards, that's also one thing because he's going to be the next Michael Jordan. But leaving all that aside, um, I think that, that I, I, I've done a little bit of reading on this. The sexual revolution of the 60s, had some delayed effects on the children of the teenagers of the 60s. So, for example, you and I were both, I'm a little, a couple years older than you, but you, me, my sister, were, I'm 65, you're like 63. What are you? 60. I'm 59. Oh my God, I'm six years older than you. Okay, we're going home. <laughs> Podcast is over. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So, I, so that, that's actually a big gap for the, for the theory I'm going to throw at you, which again is a counterfactual. I'm not, this is Siegel the Citizen, not Siegel the Common Law Professor. It seems to me that the sexual revolution has a lot to do with what's happening right now because it's the kids of the parents 
who are much, and I see this with my teenagers in some ways, sadly, who are much more sexually free. And if you're going to be sexually, if you, my, my daughters are 16 and 14. I have a 32-year-old, they're 16 and 14. Both of them, Mike, know very well that in Georgia, having sex for them is different than having sex in New York right now. They, 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 they know this. And it, it I, is. I thought aren't having sex at all. Was, isn't that like, aren't, isn't the day, aren't the day yes. showing? Yes. That's because that's of that kids. They don't want to have kids. Of young, 20, 20 something. No, they're not having any sex at all, but they're just, you know, they're just basically on TikTok. That. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think, uh, I think internet porn, internet porn is the cause of that for 15 year old males. But, but going back to, going back to what I was saying though, um, I, I, I do think that America changed dramatically sexually over the last 25 years. And that, and the Supreme Court didn't. America did, but the Supreme Court didn't. And I think that's playing a big role here. And I say that as father of two teenagers, one of whom is 16, very politically active, very knowledgeable, and very in tune with what 16-year-olds are thinking in this world. Um, you know, four years ago, when she was even like 12, abortion was no longer a moral, I mean... People need to be able to have sex without the consequence being a baby if they don't want a baby. That's their view. Um, now, you're right. They're having less sex. That, that's absolutely happening. But my, my point in all of this is society changed. The Supreme Court didn't come along, which makes me think the Supreme Court was just too early. That Roe and Casey in, in, in 1985 or 1990 is a very different phenomenon than 1973. I'm going to push back on that a little bit and say that I actually think the justices who are, um, you know, a no on abortion are primarily motivated by views about the welfare of fetuses, um, which in turn, certainly early in pregnancy, is connected to their religious views, but that they are not standing athwart the sexual revolution. I mean, you listen to, think about someone like Ted Cruz, who's a few years younger than I am, and who is, you know, complete political opportunist. He said very clearly he's not against contraception, right? They're, they, I, I do really think that they are sincerely opposed to abortion on moral grounds having to do with the moral status of fetuses. You know, and now I the, the place where there there might be some friction here is probably with respect to gender identity. Uh, but even there, right? I mean, you know, Gorsuch is a couple years younger than I am, but basically the same generation, right? He writes Bostock, Roberts goes along. Kavanaugh dissents, but he's not, you know, uh, going after them. Even Thomas, in his dissent in Lawrence, goes out of his way to say that he doesn't like this law on policy ground. So I I, I just don't think that's what it's about for, for this crop of justices. Okay. We'll, we'll leave it there. I have one last question for you, um, and I'll give you the floor, and it's a big one. <laughs> I didn't tell I was going to ask you this, but we're friends. Um, so... We met a long, long time ago, but we started working together around 2015 or 16, I think, give or take, seven or eight years. Um, you have said to me that you used to think I was 80% right, and now about my critique of the court not being a court, and, and, and then recently you said maybe I was 85% right or something like that. 
Um, my view oversimplified is that if you take life tenure an ancient document, which ours is ancient, I mean, life, life tenure, ancient document, long history of aggressive judicial review. I'll date that as Dred Scott, starting at Dred Scott. They, they did some dormant commerce clause before that, but it was mostly Dred Scott before. You, you do all of that, and it is just human nature that people are going to see the law as they want the law to be. Because they have life tenure, they can't be fired. They have to worry about their orders being enforced. That's a constraint, but it's a very, very tiny one in this country. Very tiny constraint. So in my view, what they're doing is taking law only seriously when they write the opinions, which they do. But in reaching the decision and trying to decide who wins this case, Richard K is great about this. The court's real job is to decide who wins. You have two parties, decide who wins. When they decide who wins, text, history, precedent has absolutely nothing to do with it. In any case that they care about, which is only five to 10 cases a year. But Mike, if they took 50 cases they cared about, the gig would be up. If they took 50 con law cases a year, you know, most of them would be six, three, not all of them, but most of them. So that's why it's not a court to me. Am I getting closer to 90% with you? <laughs> uh uh, you know, I mean, when I said 80, 85, right, yeah. I, I was making that up. I know. I know. Um, right. The, uh, but that's, it's it's not that far from what the political scientists who use the so-called yes. attitudinal model yes. of Supreme Court decision-making come up with, right, which is you can explain a great deal of the voting pattern just by assigning a place on the ideological spectrum. And you could probably explain more of it than even their models account for because their models aren't subtle enough to pick up things like, you know, a commitment to federalism uh, as opposed to you know, being anti-drug or something right. like that. So, right. so, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a, a huge factor, but you know, I do think that uh, uh, formal legal materials can make a difference. So if, for example, right, um, well, here, here's, I'll give you an example, right? Think about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? Uh, I wish it so was dead, but go ahead. <laughs> sorry. So Scalia writes the Supreme Court's opinion in uh, Smith, which is hostile to religious exceptions. Um, hostile and... to minority religions, because majority religions no, don't well, need... Well, well, no, they they apply that for a while. In a, in a, I mean, yes, eventually the ideological balance flips as conservatives realize that Christian conservatives can get a lot out of religious exceptions. But, you know, Scalia says this is not something that we should be doing or whatever. And then there's a statute that clearly says you do it. And so he does it. Um, so, you know, we talk about the so-called hardwired provisions of the Constitution. Those can make a difference. Um, I, I agree with I that. Also, yeah, right. And, and I also, and I think that the difference between a hardwired provision and an open-ended provision is a matter of degree rather than kind. Uh, so, right, all I have to do is get, you know, 15 to 20% of the, the decision uh, out of the formal legal materials. And I think that you could you, you could make a, make a case for that. So, you know, I don't think it's important for us to resolve this debate. We both agree that the court has an enormous amount of decision-making autonomy. Um, and... and that the higher the stakes, the more likely the result, you know, they, they will they will find the result that they want to reach in the formal legal materials. I just think that the formal legal materials 
do continue to play some role. Okay, I lied. I had one follow up. Um, so when I when <laughs> I when I, when I give, if you give me five more minutes, I, um, I when I give talks about this about the court in general, not guns or abortion or religion, but you know the court and its role in our society, I usually start with this. And I want you to react, and then we'll call it a day. I usually start with this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an American hero by any definition of the word hero. She's the most important gender rights litigator in American history. I think that's fair. I'm not sure about the people, the women who worked to get the women to vote. Maybe they were more important, but she's up there. And there's no question in my mind, this is not debatable, that Thurgood Marshall is the most important civil rights litigator in American history. His record at the Supreme Court was like 21 and three or something at a time when the court was all white and all racist, pretty much. Um, amazing people, amazing heroes. And I love both of them, and I think they both should be in the Hero Hall of Fame in America. Then they go to the Supreme Court, Mike, and in cases of political stakes, they vote liberal or, you know, Democrat 99.999999% of the time. How do we think about that? Like, it can't be the Constitution means what those two people think. And the same is true for Alito and Thomas. I'm just, I'm just, I'm a progressive. I'm leaving them out. Um, how do we make sense of, of, of Kagan and Marshall always, always voting for the liberal result in cases that raise that stakes. You mean Ginsburg and Marshall, right? Uh, I'm sorry, Ginsburg and Marshall, yes. Um, I think that there is a huge um, selection bias in terms of the cases the court hears. Uh, You know, Marshall as Solicitor General argued against what became Miranda, that that is so posner has told me that marshall and posner was with brennan around that time that marshall hated that job didn't want that job didn't care about that job and had to be coerced to take it because johnson wanted to put him on the supreme court just go ahead right he did he did it right so um i mean i think the i mean i think you're asking the question rhetorically right you're saying that uh, these are people who were able to implement their values on the Supreme Court. And I think that's right. Uh, you know, there are cases where other issues came up. Um, you know, Marshall, each of Marshall and Ginsburg wrote some terrible opinions on things that they didn't really care about. So Marshall's opinion in the Loretto case about uh, regulatory taking. Yeah, that was where, bad. You know, they, that was bad. Right. That's terrible. Um Ginsburg's opinion in the Eldred case about saying Congress can extend existing copyrights and that this is somehow within a power that's supposed to incentivize the creation of new works, also terrible. Some of her, she was a civil procedure expert. Some of her civil procedure opinions are are very difficult to implement. Um, so neither of them was put on the court. I mean, they were they were both good technical lawyers. Um, they were great. Although they were great lawyers. Yeah. Right. But they're not put on the court because of their, you know, their judgment across the range of cases or even because of their technical expertise. Neither of them is a great writer. Right. I mean, on the if you think about like, you know, I I tend to overvalue writing. So I think like if I think of like great justices of the last century, it's like, you know, Robert Jackson going farther back. Brandeis. Holmes, I think Kagan's I, a great writer. I was going to say when I get to the current court, only Roberts and Kagan make yeah. my list. Yeah, as you know, really snappy writer is yeah. clear and right. Um, so that's something. Those are things that are not exactly ideological, right? 
you know, Scalia was often too much in love with his own clever prose, but he was a nice stylist. Sure. Uh, and so you, so there are, there are professional markers that are not simply ideology. No, I, I know that, but uh, we're just going too long. But I just, I just, when I think about the court, I can't get out of my mind that two people I respect so much and think did so much for America were, in my view, the court did something to them. Like, I, I actually think the job description is not correct. Don't give somebody unreviewable power for life. Even people whose characters, with Justice Thomas, that's an easy call because he's like, as I've been writing for 33 years, terrible character. I'm going to say Ginsburg and Marshall have really good characters. I'd let them take care of my children. You know, um, Don't give them unreviewable power for life. It'll, it'll make them worse at what they do. That's all. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I don't, I don't think this is a good design for an apex court. Okay. I agree. Mike, thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun. I, we don't get a chance to talk. We call each other sometimes, but never get like an hour and a half to talk because we're too busy. <laughs> so this is great. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I hope uh, listeners enjoyed it and uh, wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all. Thanks.